Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to another episode of the Nature Photographer Podcast, brought to you by Wild and Exposed. Tonight we have a really fun guest. I sound like a old-time TV host, but we do have a super, super fun guest. But before we get to that exciting news, uh, we have Ron Hayes and we have Jason Loftus with us from Wild and Exposed. So, welcome, hi guys. Hope you're doing well. I feel like I haven't seen you in a while. And our guest tonight is Carla Rhodes. So she is, I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. She, um, I don't want to spill the beans on her background. I'll let her tell her, tell us all about that. But we were, just before we started recording, we were talking about different animals that we've seen recently. And we went from the odd juxtaposition of spoonbill roseate, or sp roseate spoonbills to porcupines. So... We, I think all of us, and, and Ron and Jason, I, I think you can chime in too. We have a wide variety of um, wildlife that we enjoy to photograph. So welcome, Carla, while I sit here and babble a little bit about different animals. Welcome to, to the podcast tonight. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And you can't leave out the fact that Carla brought up the ivory-billed woodpecker that was just seen. So mm -hmm. we've... we've mm -hmm add just one more species into that range exactly you're getting an insight into my brain i kind of tend to topic hop between animals and things so buckle in <laughs> <laughs> the reason that we were talking about the ivory ivory billed woodpecker is that i am actually not at home right now i'm actually in louisiana so i came back down here um, to photograph some birds the uh, all the nesting birds that are down here but that's where the ivory-billed woodpecker had been spotted. So we kind of got talking about different animals that were in our backyards. And Carla mentioned, you were mentioning about something a little, little spiky near you. Porcupine. They're active right now because they're eating all the buds that are emerging on the tree. Um, so I actually saw one precariously at the top of a tree with just buds completely bare and was reaching really high for a bud and I saw it clip off a branch and then take a bite and throw it and it was amazing. They're so adorable. I love porcupines. Just um, any animal that's ridiculous, I like and that's a ridiculous animal when you think about it. <laughs> they have an absolutely adorable face though. They just have this cute little round face, all fuzzy the face and the sound and, and the way they waddle when they walk and their quills have antibiotic properties and they're just fascinating animals. So yeah, I agree. Their faces are adorable. Yeah. We have, we have them out here all over the West um, and on Antelope Island out here, we get them in the winter. And for my experience, they're actually very kind of difficult to photograph. They don't like to look at you. When you get in front of them, they like to turn away from you. Um, so to, to get good photographs of them is, is pretty tough from my experience. But No, for me, they're usually really high up. I don't see them as often as I'd like. Um, I've seen some occasionally on the ground eating raspberry canes. or Usually it's, it's luck, and I've got them via camera trapping as well just by luck. But, um, yeah, they're pretty pretty hard to photograph. I I agree. If you were in Wyoming where it's, you know, a mile and a half between trees, <laughs> then you'd have more opportunity when they're on the ground. It's... Yeah, it would be cuz here I'm I'm in more of like a pine forest. It's a lot of hemlocks and white pines and stuff like that. So, yeah, but they love they love hemlocks. Jason, I was going to say I, I I'm thinking it might be you. I feel like I've seen them and they just kind of and maybe maybe it's me. They kind of like freeze in the tree and stare at me. But yeah, yeah. The, the once in a while they will when they're eating and stuff. But yeah, I, the I'll. <laughs> I mean, it's way a lot for porcupines here. But you know, it's you, you get them in this perfect spot and you get like, you know, you're right at head the same level. They're looking at you. You get set up, and it seems like by the time you get set up and start to take photos, they just turn away from you. You know, yeah. They can be very frustrating, but they're, they are cute. They have amazing, cute little faces, and 
when you can get one to to play with you and to give you a chance, they're they're actually really fun. The world needs more porcupine pictures. <laughs> That's what I say. And the North American porcupine. I always see more exotic porcupine photos who I love, but I'm I would say my favorite porcupine is the North American porcupine. Basically a beaver with quills if you think about it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I'm actually thinking when we were talking about how they don't raise their heads up, I'm thinking armadillo. Armadillos are that way too. They can't raise their heads up. So they're always, their face is always wow. down when you're trying to photograph them. So yeah. So if you take that, that, um, that shell or well, not shell, but the, the shield off of them, yeah, put some quills on them. It would be like a porcupine. Anyway. So that's another ridiculous animal armadillos, right? I've they never are. seen one in person. I would probably die if I saw one. <laughs> Yeah, they don't see very well though. So if you actually, if you kind of sit and you're, you're super, super quiet, they'll kind of go back to what they're doing because they just they won't Aww. they won't see you sitting there. So as long as you don't make noise, they'll go about it. But yeah, as soon as they they hear some noise, it's it's dust from their feet. They're out. Of they're there. gone. They're gone. So Carla, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into into wildlife photography? You have kind of this roundabout way that how you got into it. Yeah, I don't want to sound cliche, but I'm fully convinced wildlife photography and nature found me because I never picked up a camera in my life. And it was something I had never even thought about until around 2015. Um, I had spent my whole life pursuing dreams of being a comedic ventriloquist. And uh, since I was a kid and moved to New York City to be a performer, and around 2015, I got a DSLR, just a basic, it was from Costco, you know, the basic kit, like DSLR with some lenses to make short videos with my puppets. Um, and at around the same time, my husband and I had gotten a place in the Catskills. I was living in Brooklyn, New York, and the Catskills are about two and a half hours outside of the city. And um, I just started bringing the camera up here and photographing birds. I love birds, anything I saw in nature. I'm originally from Kentucky, so I grew up in nature. And then of course I was like, ugh, country, no way. I wanna live in like a city that smells like urine and trash and be disconnected from nature. But I found the more I was into nature, the more like at home I felt. So it just became this thing that I was doing for me that calm me down from the hustle and bustle of the city, something with no expectations. And I just, before I knew it, I was completely hooked on it. And it really um, gave me a sense of purpose that I had never felt in my life, um, brought me happiness and mindfulness. And I, I will always consider myself a beginner because every time I'm in nature, I learn something new about wildlife or flora and fauna. And sometimes people will say, you know a lot about nature for walking around in the woods. And I'm like, I don't know anything. I'm just constantly learning. So for me, that's part of the session with the photography as well, is learning about all the flora and fauna and all the, how frustrating photography is as well. It just keeps you hooked trying to learn. I think we could all agree with that. That it's just it is it's addictive. It there's always something happening in nature, whether you want to photograph an armadillo or a porcupine or a black bear. Hey Don. I missed we I missed most of, Yeah, we lost yeah. you. Um that I was just gonna say that the there's always something happening in nature. There's always something going on outdoors, whether it is an armadillo down south or the black bears coming out, you know, up in the Catskills or porcupines out in Utah. I mean, there's always something going on. And then there's all these crazy plants as well, you know, and bugs and, and birds and, and, and water and birds and just constant drama. I love it. Yeah, there is, it's, there. It, I, I don't know any other way to describe it except being, it is addictive. Um, you could definitely go out every single day, all day. I mean, even in the middle of the day when the light is absolutely horrible, you can either scout for something else or you can do, you know, bring in little scrims and start doing, you know, intimate scenes or there's always something. Yeah, there's always something to do. I agree. So I just kind of got hooked and just 
took it step by step. I can give a much longer answer, but I don't know how deep you want to go into it. But that's the that's the basic gist of it. So do you still do any comedy? Or are you still in front of the camera at all? Or do you really stick to, to the, the backside of the camera these days? Well, I was performing live and I did my last like tour um, in late 2018. And I just realized I didn't feel good doing it. I remember getting home and just thinking I didn't feel good doing it like I used to. Because what happened was the month prior to that tour, I ended up in India just randomly for a TV pilot. And I saw one of the most endangered storks in the world called a greater adjutant um, with, with without any knowledge of this bird at all. I had never seen it. I had never heard of it. And it was one of those moments that changed my whole life when I saw this bird. I asked the guide to take me to see more of them and I was thinking he's going to take me to a wetland because when I saw it randomly it was standing by the side of a road in remote Assam which is northeast India and I liked it because it looked like a dinosaur you know it's it's over five feet tall and has a wingspan of eight feet and it's got these piercing blue eyes and this giant wedge-shaped bill I don't know if you remember I think it was in Mad Magazine it was called Spy versus Spy like an old comic it looked like one of those characters. It was just a ridiculous looking bird. And I said, can you take me to see more of these? And I'm thinking natural environment. And he just took me to a sprawling landfill. You know, in America, we're spoiled. The trash is buried. And there, the trash is bigger than a building in a lot of buildings in New York City. Just very apocalyptic. And at the top were all these greater adjutants. And it just shifted my whole worldview of what you could do with photography, stories you could tell, and that there's so much you can do with the art form and that you can make a real difference because I had never heard of this bird and none of my friends had either. And so when I came back home, I was recovering from being in India in that world when and did that tour. And when I was done, I was just like, I really don't want to perform anymore. I want to dedicate my life to wildlife conservation photography. And so an hour later, the answer to your question is, is I don't perform anymore. But what's interesting is that this year, especially, I am getting a lot of people that want to film me or do on camera stuff, um, which is interesting. So I'm getting to dust off a lot of those old skills and bring it into the photography world, which is really exciting. Um, yeah, so but Maybe one day I'll go back to it. I, I kind of doubt it, but never say never. I, I just feel much more at home doing this and feel like I can hopefully make a difference more than I could in what I was doing before. Even if it's just someone looking at a photo and being like, that's a crazy cool looking bird. I'm going to be nice to birds, you know, anything like that. Well, there's probably a lot of skills that you can bring over from, from that type of background as well, you know, Networking with people. I mean, the, the enter, any entertainment or arts industry is so heavy on networking and being able to speak in public and being comfortable to answer questions kind of off the cuff. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I do think a lot of those skills transfer, especially for public speaking and, and just being generally goofy, having that comedic background and um, being pretty fearless and taking risk, I think, comes from that background as well, because when you're standing on stage in New York City trying to get people to laugh at you, I don't think there's anything scarier. So <laughs> I'm pretty much willing to take any risk wildlife photography wise. So we did an interview here. Oh, it was a little over a year, year and a half ago with a, a photographer, cinematographer, Garrett Vin, and he had done a, a not a feature film, but he had done an extended length conservation film about the greater adjutants and, and the fact that, you know, the, their life is spent on these dumps, these landfills and, and just, you know, the challenges that that brings to recovering a species like that. No, I saw that film this year. It came out and it was beautiful. It made me cry. It was absolutely gorgeous. And he's right. It is challenging and there's a woman there that's mobilized and all women army called Purnima Devi Burman and they've really 
made the greater adjutant a local hero. And it was just beautiful to see her work and so inspiring and to take what I learned from her back to my own backyard was really exciting because her whole motto is kind of take care of your backyard and it will take care of you because these storks, you know, they scavenge in the garbage dump, but then they fly to nearby villages and nest in huge trees. So if you can imagine these giant dinosaur birds outside of your window, a lot of people weren't happy with that. They would cut down trees and not want them there. And then also superstitions like bad omen and all that. But she was completely able to turn the minds of of these people in Assam to get them to protect the birds. And, and it's really helped the population go up and up. I mean, they still need all the help they can get, um, but it's pretty amazing. I try to explain it to people here at home. It would be like if someone got people to really protect coyotes. I love coyotes, but you know, if everyone was all of a sudden like, I love coyotes. I love rattlesnakes. I mean, who else do people villainize in the United States that we can think of? I, you know, so it's squirrels. Well, I think people really love squirrels, but you know what I mean? If you can think of an animal that people look at as an outcast, and I'm someone that I'm always telling people in my area that coyotes are amazing. I mean, I think predators are so important. I'm sure all of you do as well. And they're just, just so important and beautiful. I mean, everybody has to eat, right? Hey, Carl, I got a question for you. So you saw that bird and that started something within you. It stirred something within you. And that was kind of, it sounds like that was kind of the beginning of your journey with this passion and this, you know, this, this avenue. So in your mind, I mean, what, what was next? I mean, what did you do next? Is there, did you decide that you wanted to do a project, tell a conservation story or where did you go with that? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I became obsessed with Hargila, which is the local Assamese word for greater adjuncts. I couldn't stop thinking about them. So when I saw them on that trip, I was in that landfill for 20 minutes. And I just took quick shots. And so when I got home that fall, I just started researching them. And then I found Pernima. I kind of jumped ahead. I found there was a biologist saving the bird and mobilizing the community to save the bird and i started riding her and we we hit it off and so then in early 2020 i actually went back to photographically cover her i had never done a photo story before ever I told her that i was just really passionate about it so one thing i want to share with everybody i'm a big fan of just jumping in and doing it you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow I definitely wasn't ready to travel to India completely alone and produce a whole story, but I did it and it was terrifying and amazing and one of the hardest things I've ever done. But um, I just went and spent about a month with her. I also volunteered. Um, I took all the skills that I had and I still try to help her when I can. Um, we're kind of like stork sisters now. Um, and just kind of helping her on the ground, even if it was designing a poster for her to pass out. I donated all my photos to her. And it was just a crash course because I'm self-taught like so many of us are and starting later in life. And it was really like going to college for photography, though I'm still learning all the time. So it, it was absolutely worth the risk and the roller coaster ride that it was. And and by the way, we're all learning all the time. Trust me. <laughs> oh, there's so much. It just keeps changing. And there's, yeah, to stay kind of ahead of the curve or to, to find a niche for yourself or to market yourself, you have to find something that differentiates you. And that's something I think that you've done. You know, you've talked about conservation photography, but you also do a lot of camera trapping too. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how you got into that aspect of photography? Sure. Um, camera trapping is probably my number one. I absolutely love it. And um, I, when I moved up here to the Catskills, I got really into track and sign and just noticing, wow, if you study an animal's behavior and environment and track and sign, you'll have more chance of, of seeing the creature, getting better photos. I love capturing natural behaviors, animals doing something. And I, I got a really cheap trail cam and just stuck it on the back of my house. And one day I got like a weird bobtail going past the back of my house. But it was only because 
I wasn't studying how to put up a trail cam. I literally just slapped it up, pointed terribly, and I realized it was a bobcat. I checked with a bunch of friends, and I just lost my mind that a bobcat walked past my house. And then I really started studying it, studying track and sign more, and I just really realized the more I studied track and sign, then I could strategically put cameras. And then I would get a porcupine, or i get a bobcat, or i get whoever, whoever I'd be thrilled to get. And then I started reading about camera trapping. And then so in late 2020, I got my first camera trap and it's something I work at every day. Um, it kicks me in the butt all the time because if any of you all do it, you know, it's, it's 98% failure. You can put something out for a month and because I'm, I'm not baiting or luring, I'm just picking it and, and waiting uh, because I want those natural behaviors and waiting a really long time. Sometimes I'll get lucky. Um, and yeah, so I, I just love camera trapping. I think it's just such a wonderful form of photography to get those unique moments that you may not otherwise be able to get and really cool perspectives as well. Yeah, it's it's a tool that's been around for a long time. I mean, most of the snow leopard images that you ever see are from camera traps. Now that's changing because they're finding areas that are more accessible with higher densities. But, you know, you take a tool that's used for something remote like that or, or Siberian tigers or whatever the case may be and use it at home. And it's, you know, photography for me, and I say this all the time, is all about seeing those behaviors that happen when we're not there. Crazy, right? It's incredible. It's like a ongoing reality show in the woods and snow leopards one of my biggest regrets was on that first india trip i ended up in lay lay ladakh or ladka i always say it wrong um and the snow leopards are very near there but i had to leave the next day so i always dream of going back i did get altitude sick i did have to get oxygen yeah, no the doubt. indian himalayas are no joke but it it looks it looks like the moon up there. Yeah, yeah they that, thrive in it. They do, and that altitude sickness is no fun either. No, it kind of feels like you're dying. <laughs> <laughs> kind of feels like, and then tie that in with having a stomach ache <laughs> in the Himalayas at over 14,000 feet. And when you have a stomach ache, that's when the golden eagle flies by when you don't have your camera with you. Yeah, I think we've all been there. It's always when you don't have your camera when a unicorn goes by. I'm sure we all know that as well. Well, we do. I mean, Big Bigfoot's a prime example, right? You, yep. Everybody grabs the camera fast, and that's why all the images are blurry, because they don't have good technique, not getting set up. <laughs> you know, with so many people getting into camera trapping, we may finally right? get something, yeah. right? Because that's how those people got the ivory-billed woodpecker, supposedly, is on a trail camera, right? Yeah, I want I want Bigfoot to be real so bad. But I'm, just, I'm afraid even on a camera trap, it'd still be blurry. <laughs> I'm not going to give up hope. I'm with you. For you to see I'm one. I'm with you. I love it. <laughs> There's got to be stuff we don't know oh, yet. There's got to be. Well, like Ron was saying earlier with the, you know, when we were talking about the, the woodpecker before the show is that, I mean, there's still so many places that we just, we may have been there at one time, but we're not there frequently. You know, all these wooded areas or remote desert areas or, you know, deep, deep sea location. I mean, there's so many places on this planet that we haven't seen yet. Sorry, Jason, what are some of your uh, recent projects or some of your newer endeavors? Uh, recent projects, I did a project, a pandemic project called Beneath the Bird Feeder, which was all camera trapping common backyard birds, um, which was pretty exciting. And um, I've recently been working in a forest in Kentucky, of all places. I'm a resident there. Um, so that's pretty exciting to explore the wildlife of Kentucky, which I think a lot of people probably don't think about, but it's... Um, Bernheim Research Forest, and I'm their first ever environmental artist in residence, which is really exciting. Um, so that's what I'm currently in the middle of working on. Um, I'm home now for a break and then back there a few times this year. So I'm really excited about that because I am originally from Kentucky, but when I was growing up there, I wasn't a photographer. So for me, it's really exciting to go back 
and see everything. And, and there's a lot to see. It's pretty overwhelming, but, um, I was back at home right away. My accent was back. I've got three <laughs> pairs of overalls now. Um, did you pick so up a banjo? I did pick up a, not a banjo, <laughs> but probably next time. Um, you know, there I'm in bourbon land there. There's just bourbon distilleries everywhere. Um, so it's pretty, pretty exciting <laughs> to be there. Well, that'll be, that'll be fun. It's always nice to photograph home after you've been away. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to see it with with different eyes. I don't know how to explain it because I just got back. And so I'm having, you know, when you, especially when it's more of a scouting trip and it's really just like, I felt like I was running like 12 to 14 hours a day. I had to remind myself to slow down just to learn the landscape and all the different stuff. Um, so I'm still like, the dust is still settling, trying to make sense of it all in my head. And it was, you know, the weird in-between seasons of winter and spring, which, you know, that landscape, it really isn't super exciting, right? Lots of gray sky. I mean, while I was there, it snowed, it hailed, it rained. It was 70 degrees one day. Really crazy weather, but lots of... One thing that I did find interesting is just noticing the difference between there and here because everything was budding out there, like lots of buds on trees and and coming home, that's only just starting now. And so that's pretty cool. I just love seeing those little differences. And there's Eastern redbud trees there everywhere, which are so beautiful. And there's very few here in the Catskills. So of course I came home, went to the native nursery, bought one, and dug a giant hole in the rocky ground and planted a 15 gallon Eastern redbud tree. <laughs> so <laughs> I was so inspired by seeing them. They were just so beautiful against that gray spring sky. It is true though. You know, if you, you know, if you grow up in one place, you don't, you kind of take for granted and, and granted some of it's, and I think, you know, as we age, we appreciate things a little bit more too, but but I think back to growing up in New Jersey and now I go back and I'm like, why was I not paying attention to all this? I mean, there's just. Jersey has a lot of wildlife. It yes, does. it does in a lot of different ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can, I can agree with that part too, but. But you know, New York City's in the Atlantic flyway. I mean, for birding and that's the thing while I lived there and had an apartment, um, I just wasn't into photography the same way now. So I really never experienced like the spring migration at Central Park or Prospect Park. But um, I know that brings like throngs of people too. And I'm so used to kind of working in isolation, but so many birds come through there. As you know, it's, it's really insane. I think there are more variety of birds in Central Park than up here in the Catskills, you know, just because they're all going through for migration well they they probably get funneled because they're you know there's when I mean, you have a lot of you know there's coastline there but in regards to you know native type habitat there really isn't much within that that city area or within that island area so they probably do kind of get concentrated a little bit more within central park and the few parks that are there yeah and here it's so spread out though we do get um every year i don't want to make Jealous, but a Blackburnian warbler comes to my yard every year. It's the best thing in the world. Um, they look like, well, you know what they look like. They look like someone dumped orange juice all over a little warbler with little zebra stripes. They're adorable. Um, so we do get cool birds up here, but, you know, there's something to be said when it's concentrated in one place. It seems easier somehow. <laughs> Jason had something a little bit ago. What's up, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Carla? No, What's I was just going to, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, um, the backyard inspiration and it just got me thinking about um, who's been inspirational to you from a photography standpoint. You know, have you, have you uh, picked up a mentor by chance or, um, I know, I know most of us are self-taught. I know that you mentioned that, but um, who, who inspires you and um, who do you model yourself after? You know, that's such a hard question because Don had sent me that question and, I started to name names in my head, but then if I forget someone, I'll feel bad. Um, right. <laughs> so I have met people um, along the way who are very nice. Um, one big one for camera trapping has been Roy Dunn, 
I don't know if you've seen his work. He does all the mountain lines in LA. I cold emailed him when I got my camera trap set up and he was nice enough to answer. And now the poor guy can't get rid of me. Um, and he's just been really helpful for answering endless questions. And there's just so many people along the way and people that I consider close to me that I'll go to for advice. Um, generally lately though, I'm kind of enjoying, and I think this happened during the pandemic, working in a bubble without much feedback because it's really helping me develop a voice. Um, so I've really been into that lately. Um, and I'm just continually inspired by unique work, out of the box thinking and ways to elevate wildlife's voices in different unexpected ways. Um, I'm a fan of storytelling more than anything. I love well-composed tax sharp images, um, but I'll always pick like a really great storytelling images over that. So I, I love that type of the storytelling, the behavior type of things I'm inspired by. And um, this sounds silly. I was thinking about Don's question, but it's true. Just from my background and being married to a musician Someone I was thinking of that constantly inspires me as an artist is actually David Bowie. Just like his, the whole way he worked as an artist, just completely doing his own thing, taking sharp left turns, not afraid to fail. So I kind of grab inspiration from everywhere, if that makes sense. It's a really hard question. No, I think no, it is. And I think that's a great answer. Yeah. Sorry, Don. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it's always changing for me. I mean, one of my favorite, I guess, if you want to think in our world, I would say Amy Vitale is like one of my number ones, just the way she tells stories and just her work to me is really outstanding. So that's one name that, that pops up as an inspiration. But right now I really am in a phase of just trying to figure out how to develop my own style and voice. I don't know how it's going, but I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> well, and our styles certainly change over time too, as we either learn new techniques or we find things that we've, you know, maybe we feel like we've kind of gone through the gamut of, of what that opportunity has for us. Um, you know, most of the great artists, they, you know, they, you go to a museum show and they will show you that they will show you the beginning work and what that might look like, and then, you know, end of life work, and what that looks like, and how it's transitioned over time, um, and I think that is how we get to be better artists, like you said, you, you you force yourself to try something new, you take a left turn out of, you know, after you've been going one direction. And yeah, and that's really scary, but I, I think that's part of the thrill of it, so yeah, it sounds like that you have the same path, it's, it's exciting, and scary, and I just honestly have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm having fun. <laughs> That's all that matters in the end, right? Have fun and tell and a I story. I do want an 800 millimeter prime lens. You do. <laughs> that would help my photography. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, what? What? Now that you brought that up, actually, what? Uh, what is your gear? What? What camera brand are you shooting? have the Canon R5, which I love, and the 100 to 500. I started out with a Canon 70D and then went to um, the, the Mark IV. Um, but I've kind of stuck with Canon because I had the lens that, you know how it all goes. I know everybody's into Sony now. What do you guys use? I mean, the Sony stuff looks amazing. I try to tell myself the best camera is the one you have with you, though. So... Yeah, I think we're all Canon shooters here. You're a Nikon. No, I'm still I'm still holding on to Nikon. I'm still right. yeah, but Nikon still holding has on. Amazing that they're stuff. gonna do it. They will. I mean, it seems they all catch up with each other somehow, right? And um, I guess I don't know. I've seen people. We've all seen people like this when we're out and about. They will have the best gear and they have the biggest egos, and then they'll show you their <laughs> photos, and you're kind of like, oh, okay. You know, so it really is, I think, knowing your technique and 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 understanding the basics of photography and how to get a shot and how to tell a story or how to take make it interesting is more important than the gear, I think. Um, that's 100%. why some people ask, like, how to get started. I can't afford the gear. Like, I get it. It's been a slow roll with me. Um the Stork story I shot, it was all on the Sigma 
hundred was it 150 to 200 it weighs so much and it actually yeah 150 and i i'm convinced the combo of that sigma lens and the 5d4 gave me carpal tunnel from hand holding it so much you know but i i i, I learned a lot with it and then when i had a little more money i i moved up the gear a little um I have learned the hard way though, that the lenses are the most important, you know, having that good glass really does kick it up a notch. But I, I really love the 100 to 500 RF. I think it's a great lens. Yeah. I would like the 600 millimeter prime though, if Canon is listening, I think they just dropped a 1200, <laughs> they 1200 did. millimeter. I think I it's $19,000. I just yeah. heard about that today, a 1200 millimeter. We could call it 20,000. 20,000. Yeah. yeah, they try to make it sound a little cheaper. Right. But with those lenses, I really like to hand hold. So, like, I'm I'm pretty lazy. I try to do tripods, and I want to do them. I'll do it for nighttime stuff. But whenever I'm trying to set up a shot out, I just can never kind of turns into a Buster Keaton or old Charlie Chaplin movie, like one leg and I'm falling over and I trip over and then the moment's gone. <laughs> that new 600 L3 or the new one for the RF mount is pretty light. It's definitely handholding. It is. But okay. You can't, yeah. Without a tripod, you can't yeah, do any though, video. Probably, and it's, right? it's only 14,000 though. And I can tell you, <laughs> yeah. Only. Yeah, okay. You don't have to, don't have okay. to drop the, the 19. But I think if Canon was listening, they would have solved all their problems right now. So I'm pretty sure they don't because we, we have solved all their problems for them if they would just listen. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, I remember remember the big debacle when the R5 dropped. Everybody said it was over. that was some big online drama. I just bought it and I was so worried. But I haven't I'm not shooting 8K video, so I haven't had my camera blow up. So it I love experimenting anyway. with video. That was the whole. It doesn't. It's been a great. Yeah, it does it. Tool. So do you both have R fives as well? Okay, cool. So you love it, Dawn. I, I feel know. like the black sheep. She's gonna have a Z nine. <laughs> do like Be different. Be yeah. different. One thing I do love about all the mirrorless stuff, though, is it has made the cost of the EF lenses really drop. I've been able to get L lenses for like three, 400 bucks, like a 17 to 40 L lens in mint condition. I got recently for my camera trap set up for $300. I just sold my D 800 last year. You know, kind of the same thing. I, you know, I'm like, Oh, you know, I, it's just sitting there collecting dust. I'm not using it. I, you know, I need to, you know, kind of keep saving up for a mirror. Exactly. And now I'm kind of regretting it. And I'm like, Oh man, that would have been a perfect, absolutely perfect. Um, camera for for using for camera trap or and i i need to get some equipment back to ron um for underwater stuff too for you know for a uh you know there's situations in a camera body that you kind of go you know i don't want to use a new one i don't want to use my top of the line one but i i know it'll still get me the good photos that i need oh well it's gone now what if you send me the underwater stuff and then I'll send it yeah, to Yeah, oh, Ron. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure it'll get right back to me, right? <laughs> I tried to learn underwater photography last year and I dropped so many F-bombs I gave up. <laughs> I got in something called an Outex. That's, yeah, that's exactly what Dawn has. She's got my Outex. Well, it was really cool. Um, I just kind of put it on pause. I actually got the Altex system because the Nauticam and the Icolike, you know, that's a big investment. And I was kind of drawn to the Altex because, well, you know, you have it. It's kind of like Legos and you can kind of experiment. I'm kind of more step by step before I go all in. But underwater photography is like incredible. Of course, it it's a whole world. nother world. And I just got it for, you know, the salmon run. We were going to go up and and photograph the salmon run. So I wanted to have an option that I could get some underwater footage or at least a couple of shots. Do you know, like it does, it? it does what I need it to do. I think there's going to come a time where, you know, I've got one um, publication that's asking for more underwater content. So I'm probably going to have to, and I think what I'll probably do is rent a housing first and, um, or 
call a company and see if they'd send me a loaner and, you know, do a review on it, that kind of thing. But uh, there's going to come a time where I'm going to need to buy one because a, a lot of the trips that I want to do right now are all underwater. Yeah. Well, I hear, I'm sure you already know all this, but good things about Icolite. And that's more afford. There's some new company I saw. I already forgot the name, though. It seems like underwater photography is going up in popularity. So maybe there'll be like competition to yeah, make the price. Yeah, you just can't drop. afford for the competition to force the quality to drop. With you know, with that an investment. That's true. Like that. I did make the mistake of getting one of those. It's basically a plastic bag with a clamp on it. And <laughs> I got years ago. So, you know, Altex is is sealed up a little bit better than that, but it's pretty much the same principle. So, but it does it is effective for what you need it for as long as you don't use it very often or or go too deep. It's it's very effective. You mm -hmm. can do split shots with it if you can stop yeah. cussing so much. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. I just I I scared all the amphibians away when I was trying to use it. I was just like <laughs> <laughs> trying to focus and do it all learning never have done it before but yeah you know don you <laughs> mentioned the the 800 um you know nike have you seen nikon's new 800 that they just released 800 millimeter yeah yeah that's pretty I impressive tried it yet, but... that's a 6.3 and the price point's like six thousand dollars and it's pretty six, small I... lens it's 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 like five Whoa. five pounds five and a half pounds. It's I mean, pretty it's, dang. It yeah. weighs it weighs less than my five hundred. It costs I, less than my five hundred. Now, granted, it's six three, but it's eight hundred millimeters, so you're going to lose the extra light yeah. anyway. So, yeah, it it seems like a no brainer to me. Most eight hundreds are five six, right? Most eight hundreds are five six anyway, so six three is nothing. I mean, that's right. That's pretty yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah. No, I agree. It's. And then you put a you know one point four teleconverter on there, and you've got a, <laughs> you have some really really nice reach with that. Yeah. And then and then you put it on a Z nine where you've got all these extra stops of light, and then you have you know really good high ISO capabilities, and you have a you know a lot of resolution, so you can really crop it. I mean, it's just what you, the potential out there right now is just unbelievable. Hey, and it's kind of it kind of goes back to that was why I waited. I mean, I've got so many people that. You know, I take clients out and they're like, how come you haven't switched to mirrorless? I'm like, well, I was waiting for the Z9. I want to see what that's like. And I just haven't gotten my hands on one yet. But but that's, it just kind of makes sense. But then they, they Nikon brought out this 800 and I'm like, well, gosh, I was trying to, I was saving up for the Z9. Now I got to double how much I'm saving up for. Oh my gosh, by the time I get around to actually having all that, it'll, maybe I should buy that, that eight. That the only thing you won't, there. the only <laughs> thing you won't have when you get all well, that, that done is the, $30,000 that it's going to cost you. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. He got you. Zing. Well, you know, that happened to me. I bought the R5 and because I was ready to upgrade anyway. And I'm like, I'll, I'll make the jump. And then Sony dropped all their new cool stuff, the A1 and all that. And I'm like, I've been had, I mean, the A1 is really expensive, but so many people I know of just, they're all abandoning everything and going to Sony. So it's kind of tempting, but I just really love my Canon stuff and I love their service. If you have an issue, um, I have good luck with getting them on the phone and getting stuff clean. Like um, after Kentucky, my camera has never been so dirty, like mud and covered with crawdads and bats and spiders and ghosts or whatever, <laughs> but just send it in and get it back like two days later. Um, I don't know. Sony, if you're listening, I'll try your gear. <laughs> yeah. I think the other thing too, is I know, um, you know, you've mentioned it too, Carla, that I really want to learn more about, about video. That was something I really wanted to do this year. And I do think the Sony system seems to be really, really good for that. The R5 takes pretty wicked video though that i mean all of them i think are catching up but yeah sony's supposed to be so amazing and low light that's what i keep hearing for everything and then um you know eventually i'd like to go all mirrorless for camera trapping as well because you can do silent shutter you know the dslrs are are very loud but that's a big investment and then also knowing someone could just walk off with all your gear that's a big commitment but that is why, commercial break, why I have Napa insurance on all my gear. <laughs> it was one of the only places as a Napa member that would actually cover camera traps. 
Did you know that? I've been very impressed with their insurance. I haven't had to use it yet, but um, they actually cover your camera traps. I called and said, if a bear just like dumps honey on my camera trap, is it covered? Yes. If if someone what is it covered? Yes. So I thought that was pretty cool. So um, having that stuff covered insurance wise, when you're leaving a ton of gear in the woods, you know, makes me feel a little better. Well, there was just a wild and exposed episode um, where you guys had had somebody on talking about camera traps and he was talking about how he actually puts out cameras to for security for his camera traps. And Put it's the, the spy you know, point cameras out. So it's, I know, it's kind of sad that you have yeah. to do that. Oh, wow. Yeah. See, I haven't done that, but I do always hide a trail cam, not only for security purposes, but to monitor behavior, you know, behavior and see. Um, if I need to adjust anything to see how the animal reacts and best practices and all that. And sometimes the trail camera will get things that the camera trap didn't, which is interesting. But I think security wise, that's interesting with the the picture yeah, thing. Neil, that's great. Neil Jernigan puts out those. Oh, those. Oh, my cats. gosh. His work yeah. is great. Oh mm -hmm. yeah, I love I love his work. Oh yeah, it was a great He's conversation. A really cool really guy. Nice. He is a really nice guy. Yeah. We're connected on the socials, <laughs> but I've never met him. I know he does workshops, but yeah, I I really love his work. He he seems to be someone that just gets out there and yep. does it, which is my favorite right. type of photographer. When you do camera trapping, Carla, do you are you pre-visualizing a type of photo or are you at this point still kind of in a documentary stage? That's a good question. The further I get into it, the more I am pre-visualizing. I think I'm sure as Neil will tell you, you it's very hard to predict where the subject is going to show up. Um, of course you can pinpoint that via track and sign or like well-traveled logs or whatever. As I get deeper into it, the more I am thinking about composing, lighting, storytelling. What One of the questions we love to ask all the guests is, and I, we haven't asked you this one yet, um, what is your favorite outdoor experience? It doesn't have to be photography related, but what, what is that one experience that when somebody asks you that, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? No one's ever asked me that before. It's a wonderful question. And when you took off the pressure of photo wise, I'm just going to go with what popped in my head. My favorite outdoor experience is just being in the moment. The only time, sadly, that I'm completely in the moment, completely a thousand percent present, besides right now, is when I'm in nature. There's something just so amazing, and I'm sure you all know exactly what I'm talking about. Time stops, and if I've had a bad day, it doesn't matter anymore because I'll see a creature or a plant, and it's just a, a beautiful gift to enjoy. Um, so that's my favorite nature moment besides all the other moments. Yeah, that's... Has someone said that answer before? No, actually, I don't think I've heard that one. That's... Uh... Yes. <laughs> you, you win. <laughs> I guess it would be called just the mindfulness of being in nature because when you're really present in nature, I just get lost in the patterns you can see, the bugs, the wildlife. Um, it's just mind blowing, right? It's a total trip. Yeah. Because sometimes when I'm just in the middle of it, it's the random chaos of nature continually just astounds me and how it all works together. We have so much to learn from right. it. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned this earlier. You mentioned something earlier. It made me think of this, but, um, you know, I use the term FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. And it, I, it is a real thing. I mean, and it's not about, it's just every time I'm not out there where I want to be in nature, having those experiences, I always am just like, man, what am I missing right now? Because you know somewhere something amazing is going on. And to not, you know, to not be there just eats at you. It's, it's I don't know. I'm sure everybody here feels the I, same way. But. I totally relate. I totally relate. Like when I'm working on something and in the moment, especially a project that's taken a lot of time, even if I have to stop to eat, I won't even eat on those days because I'm worried I'm going to miss something. Yep. So I know that. So 
Well, even today I had to stay in editing all day and I was thinking, man, what am I missing? <laughs> what if there's, so I get that. That means you really love it. Yeah, that's true. And the, and the camera traps do help with that because you can kind of cheat a little bit, right? When you're not there, which is, which is kind of fun too. But. I do. I do love that because my dream is to just have a ton of um, camera traps. I mean, if you think about it, what's like, I try to, what's an analogy, like passive income, like it's passive photography, like it's so much work, but once you get it set up and tuned in, it's kind of working for you because, you know, once you get it, you don't forget it, but you know, it does take some fine tuning at first, like adjusting lighting or the position. And then it's really just leaving it and then checking it a month later and seeing you got a perfect, perfectly composed shot, perfect lighting beautiful but then it's just one paw or just a piece of a tail and then you just have to keep trying until the whole subject gets into frame i guess you know one of the questions that that i'm i'm, I'm so impressed with carly you mentioned that you started um doing this in about 2015 and here we are seven years later and you have just gone leaps and bounds. You've had a ton of publications out there. You've done such a great job of taking a story, you know, like the storks or your backyard birds and really packaging it together as a cohesive story, not just from the perspective of telling the story, but then also getting it out. So what kind of tips do you have for people who are interested in doing that? Well, first of all, thank you for so many nice words. Um, Honestly, when I started getting stuff out there, I had no idea what I was doing. And I was just cold contacting uh, editors. And the amount of rejections that I would get for each story would be pretty crazy. But I kept going because I believed in it. So long story short, if you believe in something, keep pushing, keep putting it out there. Um, my stork story was rejected by so many people. And then it ended up as a whole page in the New York Times almost eight months later because I didn't give up. Um, same thing happened with my project beneath the bird feeder. For six months, no one wanted it. And then all of a sudden, people wanted it. Um, so my tips for people would be just chase your passion if you believe in it. Um, don't give up. Don't be scared to randomly contact editors they ignore everyone it's not personal <laughs> when i started i thought it was personal um and focus on building relationships um try to go to portfolio reviews networking but the one person that's going to get your story out there more than anything is you and and showing up and saying i have a story and believing in it I hope that's helpful. Um, I have many tips, but I'm figuring them out as I as I talk. And I think a lot of it is, frankly, like anything, luck and timing. Like, you know, I think a lot of um, what's happened with me is just timing and luck things, um, preparation, meeting opportunity type of thing. A lot of things at once. So I think also being ready for opportunities when they arrive arise is very important. There's a lot of things I didn't think I could do that exhausted me and I just pushed through or I might have missed that opportunity. That's a great point. Um, I love all the little tips you gave there. There's a lot there's a lot of pro tips right there. Um, and I think the the last one was probably the one that hit me the most. And I think it is important to you know, rely on, rely on yourself. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to reach out to people. You mentioned that you reached out to people and start asking questions. Some people may ignore you, but others are going to be more than willing to help you. And when those, when those folks are willing to help you, you know, take advantage of that um, and build those relationships and build that network. And um, the one that hit me the most was just being ready for the opportunities when they arise. Um, you know, you can't just be out there contacting people if you if you don't have um, a portfolio or if you don't have you know something to um, present to them so obviously you need to be working on what is that that you're trying to sell or you know what what is the story you're trying to sell and have something ready to go um, so that when that does arise you you can take advantage of it but anyways that great great answer 
I was just going to say that, you know, photography, like any form of art is very personal. So it's, it can be hard for some of us to, to kind of put ourselves out there and to, you know, take those chances. But, you know, the flip side to that argument is that you guarantee that no, if you don't ask for the yes, right? That's a really great thing you just said. And, um, I have to always remind myself it's subjective as well. One person might like my stuff and the other person might think it's garbage and it's like anything it's, it's subjective. Um, and so I think, especially if you're pitching a story, if one publication doesn't get it, doesn't necessarily mean your stuff is bad. Of course, I have so much to learn like we all do. And maybe my stuff isn't ready for certain publications and that's okay. But then how can you spin that in your head and think, well, maybe it could go in this publication that's non-traditional for wildlife photography, for example. You know, I'm a big fan of getting these stories out to broader audiences. I love all the nature and science and wildlife publications. They're great. But I also want to get the everyday person interested in wildlife. So I think that's an untapped market that a lot of wildlife photographers probably don't think about. There's a lot of publications outside of wildlife publications. You know what I mean? So there's all these markets. If you just try, you might be surprised. And that's been the case with me is just really trying things and getting tons and tons and tons and tons of no's. Tons of no's. You got to be thick skinned. for sure. It really, uh, it, it hurts. It does hurt. I know we all hurt. I'm not going to lie. It, it does hurt, especially when people don't answer. But like anything, the more you get into it, you you realize it's not really personal. Or maybe it is. <laughs> My hair is crazy. Maybe some people are yeah. triggered by the hair. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But and I don't care if they don't like my hair. My mission. That's not on me. <laughs> I want to hear your take, your take on that whole process. I mean, my thing that keeps me going, though, more than anything is, yes, I am a photographer. And yes, it's nice to have my work recognized. But my work is really about elevating wildlife. So if someone rejects the story, it's not really about me, um, you know, which takes part of the sting about it. When I was in show business, it would really be like, oh, your weight's too heavy. Your nose is too big or that wasn't funny enough. I mean, talk about something hurting. So with photography, it definitely hurts a little less because I know, well, if, if they don't like this story idea, hopefully I'll think of other ones. But the rejection is unfortunately a huge part of this, as we all know. And I think you know, to go along with that, you know, if they don't like this story, it might just be the angle. I think one of the areas that we're all missing out on a little bit is with kids. Kids are so disconnected from nature because they sit on their phones all the time or they're playing video games, things like that. Or, you know, it's a different time than when we were kids and you could just go outside and play until dark and then you come back in. Now parents are a lot more protective and for good reason. So finding publications that, it, that, you know, try to target a younger audience gives us an opportunity to allow them to connect with a nature that they might be, might not be able to experience on their own. And I know, you know, I grew up on a ranch in Wyoming that got maybe 13 inches of rain a year, but I wanted to be a marine biologist because all these publications that I saw, National Geographic, um, all the shows on PBS, Jacques Cousteau was on there and my grandparents would buy me these, you know, nature books. Everything I saw was underwater. That was the only connection to the ocean wow. I ever had, but it impacted me in, in such a way that, you know, that was my life's ambition. And obviously I'm still in Wyoming receiving 13 inches of rain a year, but it's given me a love for nature in other ways. And you know, that's what kind of brought me to this point. So I think, you know, there are different angles. And sometimes we, like you, like you just said, we get focused on these things that we see and lose sight of the potential to impact younger people for the positive, you know. Man, that's a really beautiful statement. Yeah, Ron's dead on. And another thing that popped into my head when you were giving your answer there 
And I think it's something that's a it's a good thing to note for people because, you know, a lot of times we talk about as wildlife photographers, you know, you really want to make sure you have a good portfolio. And when you're just approaching editors for general photos, you know, like elk photos, for example, you don't really want to go to RMEF and say, hey, I want to be published. I've got, you know, a year's worth of photos. And they go, well, okay, but I'm looking for this. And you, well, I don't have that. Well, I'm looking for this. Well, I don't have that. And pretty soon they're going to stop coming to you because every single time they ask you for something, you don't have it. And so that, that gets difficult. And a lot of people will say, you know, you probably need five years worth of photographing animals to kind of build a good portfolio that you have good content to give to editors. However, on the flip side, when you're doing a story or you're trying to tell a story like you've talked about, you can actually do the photography, create the story, and approach them with that. And now you're offering them a uh, you know, a story and they can either say yeah or no. And, but you're not, it's not about your portfolio. It's about the story that you're presenting. Right. So I think it's a, it's almost kind of a shortcut way to get some of your work um, in, you know, into editors and, and get it published. But. No, that's a, that's a very good point and makes me think a lot too. And yeah, it definitely is my approach, like building a story type of thing. Um, and so that has worked for me. Um, these are all really good, good stuff to talk about. I don't get to talk about this stuff as much as I'd like to. So I'm loving hearing everyone weigh in. Well, thank you. It's, it's fun to visit with you and, and get that, you know, a fresh yeah. perspective, really. You know, you're not somebody that's been in it for 60 years. So you've, you've got a fresh set of eyes on on this as a as a career in conservation photography you know in and of itself and it's fun to hear that and fun to hear the impact that one animal had on your outlook as far as that goes yeah i mean hargila really it's it's really crazy just seeing that bird it sounds like a movie when i talk about it but it's really true i don't know i mean we've all had moments like that in nature mm -hmm. but it just it it just, uh, I've never had anything feel so clear. Um, but yeah, I do wish I had been photographing much longer than I have, though, just because I love it so much. You know, I, I, I found it later in my life and I always wonder, oh, man, what if I would have found mm -hmm. this when I was younger? But I tell myself, you know, stuff happens at the right time. And I also think there's never been a better time to be a wildlife photographer, as we all know right there's agreed so many things and the natural world needs our help absolutely mm -hmm. i just wish i could hang out with david attenborough so if you're listening david let's hang out <laughs> well i love you have a really you have a really to... high bar for the folks that listen to our podcast i love it <laughs> you never know he could be listening and being like i am enjoying listening to ron and carla and jason and Don not hearing Carla. It's amazing <laughs> to see them in their environment, especially for the fact that Don's hotel room is an energy vortex filled with ghosts and has cut her connection to reality, and that's why she can't hear Carla. Uh, poor, poor Don. She's like that now. She's she feels left out, and I totally get it. Yeah. You know the fun part though is she's going to get to hear that absolutely with years like we were just well, talking about. Well, at least we'll know eyes, what happened right? if she really is in some strange paranormal energy <laughs> vortex. I clearly if she makes it to Yellowstone <laughs> on that. Well, I'm sure since we've all done long yeah. drives, I did go down the coast to coast AM hole. Do you guys know that show? That paranormal show that only comes in at like one AM. You know, Ron? <laughs> no. Oh yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's yeah. Wyoming right there. Everything shuts down except for the AM that we can now pick up from Area 51. Whoa. See, I'm really so. Sure. Here's a question. How do we merge the paranormal with wildlife photography? This could be a completely untapped market that we four could pioneer. I, I like it. I, I think you might be onto something. Yeah. Because we talked about Bigfoot, we're getting into energy vortexes. You guys knew I was crazy, but now I'm just sealing the deal. I'm going out with a bang. Black helicopter and white orb right. wildlife. Here's a question, though. Ghost hunters never get good photos of their ghosts. 
so we no. could figure that out. It's just the With orb. All of our yep. gear. Yeah. I think I have a plan for that. I just have to yeah, find. Yeah, what is it? I just have to find a ghost. Well, I can't. I'm not going to put it out there on the podcast because I don't want others copying. Steal your idea. And then get in the image yeah. first. So, yeah. You know, Ron, there's one. There's one right behind you. Yeah, there probably is. It's red. To the left. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't turn around. Yeah. No, I never yeah, do. Funny. I don't look back, only forward. Just actually, if you want that ghost to go away, just send me that big camera in the background and i'll hope it go away it's not a sony though so i don't that's okay i got my canon <laughs> so carla we're because don can't hear us and we're gonna you know we we all feel bad for don she's missing out but where can people find you online you can find me at carlarodes.com and I'm on Instagram at Miss Carla Rhodes. So it's C A R L A R H O D E S dot com. Are there any upcoming projects that you want people to be on the lookout for? I'm going to be working at Bernheim quite a bit, which is really exciting. But that's going to be, well, if the podcast comes out later, I might have some stuff online by then. But um, I'm always working on a bunch of different stuff. So you can find it through the website and I kind of honestly never know what's going to happen. I have so many ideas trying lots of things. So hopefully when we catch up again down the road, I'll have some exciting news for you. Yeah. Well, we might have to come out to Bernheim. I've never been to yeah, That would be amazing. Kentucky's it's, like it's, one of seven States that I haven't been to yet. So you haven't been to Kentucky. Not yet, but I want to get out there. So just out of curiosity, before we sign off, is Bernheim one of the areas where they reintroduced elk? Because they did the some reintroduction is, in Kentucky, but I, I'm not sure where. Not, not in Bernheim. Okay. So that would be cool. If I hear about that, though, I'll let you know. Please do. You're elk yeah. fan, because you're right. They are in. Is it Eastern Kentucky? Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, there's a lot. Bernheim's kind of more near Louisville. Oh, okay. So kind of, I guess, like in the in the middle. I don't know how to, you know, this way. Um, but, yeah, I forgot about the elk. It's a cool thing. Yeah, it'd be fun to go document them, you know, in all those areas where they've been reintroduced, you know, that they occupied yeah. before. So. Absolutely. They've introduced bourbon everywhere. <laughs> That's not a reintroduction, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, Carla, thank you very much for joining us and. uh we will do this again. That was it was a fun conversation. It'll be good to visit with you on the back end of that Bernheim project to kind of get your get your take from start to finish. Yeah. Yeah, it would be fun to do an update because again, it's like a crash course in in photography, learning as I go, and I'm really loving it. And it's been really great to connect with with all of y'all. So thank you so much for having me. And I'm sorry, Dawn can't hear me, yeah, but she'll hear be a me surprise. later. She will. Don, thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Nature Photographer Podcast brought to you by Wild and Exposed. <laughs>